65,498 square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry. Good afternoon. I am indeed Kristen Bry, and welcome to Spanning the State, the show where we highlight stories from across the state and break down headlines that affect the whole state. My guest co-host today is maybe, maybe... The hardest working man in radio. No, not true. Eric Bilstad. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. On your third day of five hours of radio. <laughs> yeah, talking is really hard for me. Is, you know? <laughs> so is it because you love radio so much or just because you're so, your demeanor is that you're a very helpful teammate? Yes, yes I'm trying to be a good teammate. Uh, that it's just, it's, it seems like you make it look very easy to be on air for five hours oh, in a given day. Thank you for saying that. It's, probably, it's very easy working with someone like you, Kristen. Oh, Eric. There you go. Now I'm blushing. Uh, well, I there, I may have to give Spalding some. Um, oh, I, I called, heard about I this. called Spalding Billstad multiple <laughs> times on Monday. I don't know if it was my brain glitching. Sure. I don't know if I can blame it on mommy brain, uh, like the cloud. Uh, but Mike I and may I look have. Alike. I might have to call you Spalding just to make him feel better a couple times a day. <laughs> okay, Do enough. that that like everyone in the studio until I actually mm-hmm. get to your name. That's fine. All right. Well. Coming up on today's show, I'm very excited. Uh, we have a lot of good guests lined up, including PJ Leash, because the cicadas are coming. That's have you right. heard about this? I have heard about this. So a rare brood, double brood of cicadas are coming to Wisconsin. And the Wisconsin bug guy, PJ Leash, is going to be here to let us know what we can expect. Like, how loud will it be, actually? Because... I don't know. The cicadas don't really hurt you. Oh, no. They're just but they're just big and loud. Ugly and... Yes. Well, so they're two separate breeds. Is that right? That's what I understand. So it's two species which haven't been seen in Wisconsin since one since 2007 and the other since 2011. So will they breed with each other? I don't know. Create a super bug? <laughs> These are all great questions for super PJ. Super cicada? Uh, then at 2.15, we're going to talk about internet affordability, a federal program that made internet more affordable for... Over 400,000 Wisconsinites is soon expiring. It's going to run out of money. And so we're going to be talking to David Burka from the United Way's Tequity Program on what that means and kind of break down in a post-COVID world, how much Internet now should be seen as a necessity instead of a luxury? Almost like a utility, like yeah. a water or heat. Versus, because think about the last time the Internet went out at your house. Oh, my gosh. My kids wouldn't let me hear the end of it. But how, like, how many things did you go to do? You're like, oh, I have to do this thing. You're like, I oh, never mind. I can't do it because there's right, no yeah. internet. Everything, basically. And so we're going to be talking to David about how much this impacts people. Like, how many people got on, got internet at home because of the program, and now who's willing, who might lose it? And then at 2.30, as we just discussed, as we uh, crossed over with the midday news, John McCure had an interview yesterday with former Governor Marty Schreiber about his new book that chronicled his time taking care of his wife, mm-hmm, who had mm-hmm. Alzheimer's, and... The timing is such that we are also talking about Alzheimer's today, but more in the sense of programs that exist to improve quality of life. Okay. And so we're talking to Carrie Esselman from the Fox Valley, uh, Fox Valley Memory Project and about memory cafes, which sound lovely. Sound pleasant. They sound yes. very pleasant. So, but first, Eric, would it surprise you to know that there is a singular multi-billion dollar Texas-based company that owns about a thousand 
single-family homes in Milwaukee alone. That number sounds significantly high. I'm not surprised that it happens, but I'm surprised that 1,000. That's 1,000, and countrywide, this company owns 25,000. And I assume other companies own some here in Milwaukee, too. Yes, and so it's not unique to Milwaukee. It's not unique to Wisconsin. There are more and more investors, hedge funds, corporations, private equity, money... Companies that have a lot of capital. Now, is that why they own them? Is it, wh- Why do they own a house? Well, I mean, because then they can rent it. Okay. And so they become corporate landlords. And yep. so their ability to make money, make a profit on just having people continu- continuously rent from them. Yeah. And so recently, earlier this month, it was reported that Senator Tammy Baldwin, along with some other Democratic senators and congressmen, have been introducing different types of bill that would slow down these types of investors from buying up more real estate because I think the assumption is it's a hard time to buy a house. We don't want a nation of, or a generation of renters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's one of the most important financial investments any of us can make as far as long-term generational wealth. And so when we come back, we're going to talk to Teague Whaley Smith, who works for the affordable home ownership, uh, who works on affordable home ownership in the Milwaukee area. And so he's going to talk about, how big of a problem is this actually? Is this the biggest, highest priority when it comes to home ownership in Milwaukee, in Wisconsin? And so uh, he'll be coming up right after the break. Citing Unlimited WTMJ News Time is one twelve. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Eric Bilstad. And earlier this month, Senator Baldwin introduced legislation that would slow down or put the brakes on investors and hedge funds from buying up single family homes that they then rent out, increasing the amount of people who are renting versus buying and becoming first time homebuyers. And we were talking about there one company that has bought a thousand homes in Milwaukee alone, but Journal Sentinel reported that one out of five Milwaukee rental homes has an out of state owner. So there's more than just this company doing it here in the city. Yes. And so I can imagine also having been a renter, trying to get hold of your landlord who doesn't even live in the state, <laughs> probably not the easiest thing to it's do. Like an eight hundred number. So learning about the prevalence of this practice made me wonder in the conversation around first time home buyers, affordable housing. In Milwaukee, in Wisconsin, how big, where is this on the priority list as far as how big of a problem it is? So here to talk more about that is Teague Whaley-Smith, who is the Chief Alliance Executive with the Community Development Alliance. Um, and you focus on affordable home, home ownership in Milwaukee, correct? Yeah, particularly around racial equity and closing the gap between white home ownership and black and Latino home ownership. Got it. So how, where is this on your guys' radar as far as this being an obstacle to people entering the housing market? Uh, The top priority. It is? Okay. Absolutely. So um, the Community Development Alliance is a network of uh, residents, housing implementers, funders, uh, and other allies in the public sector to address racial equity and homeownership. Uh, The Alliance put together a housing plan in 2021, which was the first ever collective affordable housing plan. So we were all working from the same page is approved by the city council, county board, et cetera. And the number one issue was the predatory investing that was occurring. And there are some transactional approaches to this. For example, we set up an acquisition fund 
Uh, that's an $8 million fund for a local nonprofit to buy homes away from landlords and flip them back to homeowners. But that's not going to be enough by itself. There needs to be a regulation in this area. And so I was just thinking about this because there's affordable housing issues across Wisconsin. And in some places, it's about building more homes. Like I was just seeing in Oshkosh, uh, a headline and a story about we need to build our way out of our, our housing shortage. In Milwaukee, there's not a lot of places to build more, right? Like we are landlocked. There's We're surrounded by other communities. So is that why for specifically in Milwaukee, it's changing who owns the homes versus trying to encourage more building? Uh, we need both. Okay. Uh, so we have about 17,000 black and Latino families that are aspiring right now to buy a $125,000 home or less. So that's 17,000. Each year on the market, there are only 1,500 homes available. So more than a 10 to 1 ratio between the number of families that want homes and that can find the inventory. And even worse, of that inventory, 40% is going to investors rather than to homeowners. And in some of our neighborhoods, up to 80% of those homes are going into investors instead of homeowners. Uh, so in uh, if you look at the Milwaukee history, 95% of the single-family homes and duplexes that were built in our community were built prior to 1968 when it was still legal to discriminate against black and Latino families, and that's exactly what happened. After 1968, we literally stopped building because yeah. we were landlocked at that point, and only very large homes in the suburbs were be able to be built, and 40% of our ownership inventory went to investors, and that's still going on today. Are the homes that are available, are they also overpriced? I mean, is there some price gouging going on there? Uh, particularly since the predatory investors have started targeting Milwaukee. Uh, we have one predatory investor that has come in. Uh, there are three firms that have bought over 1,500 properties in the last five years. Uh, and one of them is under pressure to now sell because they are at a point where they had adjustable rate financing and interest rates have gone up. Um, but they are selling at twice the purchase that they uh, they bought for just five years ago, fundamentally changing the market in neighborhoods in a very negative way for new homeowners. So they're not desperate enough yet, uh, but certainly with interest rates where they are, we hope to see some positive news. But it's going to take legislation like what uh, Senator Baldwin has introduced uh, and others have introduced to make sure that uh, people are on a uh, fair playing field. What we like to say is that the big problem is portfolio sales. These properties are transferring uh, from one landlord to another. They're never listed on MLS. No one homeowner can buy 10 properties, keep one for themselves, and sell the other nine. So we need to have an even playing field for homeowners. Often homeowners are willing to pay more than landlords, but it's just simpler for out-of-town landlords to sell to one another. And what's been happening is smaller landlords have been selling to these bigger fish rather than splitting up their portfolios and selling them to homeowners. We're talking to Teague Whaley-Smith, who's with the Community Development Alliance, about predatory investing, which is the first time I've ever heard that term. I've heard of predatory lending, which we all know from 2008. But can you explain a little bit more about what that term means? Uh, well, they're very related. So everybody remembers the 2008 financial crisis. And what happened is that in neighborhoods like mine in the Sherman Park neighborhood, just a block away from us, there were 12 foreclosures on one block. Typically, low real estate prices for entry-level homeowners is a good thing. But in that circumstance, you know, you could pick up a duplex or a single-family home for fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in our neighborhood, but no banks were lending to anybody, and our neighbors didn't have that kind of money. So it was outside investors who had their own access to cash that came in and swept up these properties in a very predatory way. If you looked at a map of Milwaukee uh, where predatory investing is occurring, it would look exactly like a population map of where black families live. And I think there's also a story that what crashed the economy in 2008 
is predatory lenders took this practice and perfected this practice in black neighborhoods and taking away equity from people. And then they just took that technique to the white suburbs and destroyed economies there as well. Exact same thing is happening with predatory investing. The initial focus have been on the most vulnerable population that nobody is defending. Uh, and they have now started to take that technique, and you're starting to see this in white suburbs as well. Interesting. All right. Well, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to at least I want to stress why homeownership is still important, why it's not only for individual families, but as a society, as an economy, why a generation of renters is not necessarily a good thing. And there are a lot of renters now, right? Like Tons of renters. Yeah. And so we'll talk about that when we come back. Citing Unlimited, WTMJ News Time, one twenty one. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Eric Bilstad. And we were talking to Teague Whaley-Smith uh, from the Community Development Alliance about homeownership, what is getting in the way of single individuals being able to buy homes in Milwaukee because there is new legislation trying to keep big investors with deep pockets from buying up what is available. And to put a finer point on it, why is homeownership still such a big deal, not only just to individual families, because we think the investment of it, return on investment, building wealth, but also to a society. Like, I don't think it's a good thing to have a majority of people be renters, is it? Yeah. And the research would back you up on that. Modern research shows that people in stable housing have a 30 percent lower dropout rate for their kids, 20 uh, percent lower crime rate, including homicide rates, 20 percent higher uh, overall uh, health and employment rates. That's really a critical factor, and the issue is that rental housing has fundamentally become unstable in the Milwaukee market and many markets throughout the country. We've seen double-digit increases in rent. If rent only increased at the rate of inflation, the average rent would be about 550 to $600 a month if you average it from the 1950s. Instead, the average rent is closer to twelve to $1,400 rent. So rent increases faster, and the beauty of homeownership is that it locks in your rate for the next 30 years. You're paying the same mortgage payment for 30 years. Imagine if you were paying the same rent as your parents 30 years ago. That's how powerful homeownership is because it locks in uh, that payment for 30 years. It's the best hedge against inflation, particularly rent inflation, which has been in double-digit increases over the last several years. Well, and also, I have to imagine, I don't know if there's been research, there's probably been research on it because everything gets researched in one way or another, but the value of taking care of the home that you own versus the place that you're renting, but also for these big corporations that own all these properties, some of which they never probably even see. And so their their accountability or responsibility to maintain, upgrade, improve. So how does it also affect our neighborhoods when it's not individuals taking pride in a home that they own? Yeah, it affects our entire society, not just the neighborhood we're living in, uh, but the entire society. There's a great book written in the 1990s called Bowling Alone, which measured the impact of community and the loss of civicness uh, in our country. And people are less likely to donate to philanthropy, less likely to um, you know, be friendly, less likely to vote. Every single civic metric is based around the homeownership premise, because if you have homeowners that are there, they're more likely to participate in their school board meeting, care about the funding level of their schools and cities, 
Uh, they just have a stake. They feel like they belong in the community. And I think if you look at a lot of things that we would label as social ills, they're really a lack of belonging um, and not feeling like there are consequences that actually matter because you don't belong in a community. And when you get to up to 80% rental in a community, people don't start to see it as their community anymore. They see it as somebody else's. Is there an average amount of time a home renter will remain in a house? It entirely depends on neighborhoods. In some of our neighborhoods that are uh, in most poverty, um, it's not even a full year because they can't afford these outrageous rents and they get up getting evicted during the middle of the year. You've heard Mayor Johnson or County Executive Crawley speak. They'll tell you that they went to 12 different schools because they had to move every single year. Um, so for a lot of families in our core neighborhoods, it's every year. And imagine what that does to a school system. The model, of course, is Sweden, where you have the same teacher in the same class for seven years. Here, teachers don't even have the same kids in the classroom throughout the year because there's this housing crisis. So the legislation that's been proposed is at the federal level in Congress, in the Senate. Is there in the House, in the Senate, is there anything we could do at the state level that could affect this? Um, absolutely. Uh, and there's things we can do at the local level as well. Uh, but it's time for the feds to step in. In 2017, yeah. the city council saw this problem happening. They passed very smart legislation that said landlords had to register and keep their property code compliant, a fairly middle of the road legislation. And within months, the state legislature came in with 2017 Act 317, which stripped the local government with the ability to regulate landlords. So we're going to need federal government to intervene. Uh, unless the state legislature somehow changes its mind and recognizes that landlords uh, are part of the problem, not uh, not the solution. There will always be a need for some people to rental, particularly older people that don't want to take care of a home. But right now, the black and Latino uh, homeownership rate is half of what it is for white families. We have 32,000 families that we need to support to reach racial equity. That's not going to be solved through landlords. It's going to be solved through homeownership. Well, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest is Teague Whaley-Smith from the Community Development Alliance. Coming up after the news, we are going to talk about cicadas. And change change gears a little bit that cicadas are coming. There's going to be a lot of them. And uh, I don't know. I can't. I think we may have some sound of what cicadas actually <laughs> sound like. That's fine. We don't, we don't necessarily. You don't want to listen to them. That's loud, on great radio. Large, is to, to bugs screaming at us. But I also there's all, we're going to be talk, <laughs> talking with PJ Leash, who is the Wisconsin bug guy. He's made this his entire brand. So if there's also any questions you have for him as far as other bugs that we should be aware of, text those in now. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry, along here with Eric Spaulding. No, just kidding. <laughs> Eric Bilstead. Uh, the cicadas are coming. It sounds like we're getting infiltrated by tiny little bugs. Right. But if you haven't heard, and you definitely will hear them once they get here, because, you know, they're cicadas. But a rare double brood of cicadas are coming to a neighborhood near you this summer. Uh, there's two different species, and they've been... I don't know if hibernating is the right word, but one since 2007, one since 2011, and they are expecting to emerge this year. So there are different cycles, apparently. There's 17-year cycles. 17-year cycles. So we're going to find out, because here to tell us more about what to expect, why it matters, is the Wisconsin Bug Guy and Director of UW-Madison's Insect Diagnostics Lab, PJ Leash. How you doing, PJ? Good. Thanks for having me on today. 
Yeah, we're so excited. I love talking to you. You have made bugs so interesting to me. <laughs> and so hopefully we'll have enough time to talk about some of the other bugs, because I think yeah. people are also probably wondering, with such a mild winter, what can we expect for bugs this summer? But let's start with cicadas. How many cicadas are we talking about, PJ? As a whole, we're talking about billions of them coming out this year. With a B? But... Yes, with a B. <laughs> That's a lot of them. Uh, with the, the two broods that are popping out, though, <clears throat> so they occur in different geographic areas, and, and the 13-year brood, which is popping out, that's really to the south of us, like the southern half of Illinois and Missouri and places like that. So we won't see those up here. But the 17-year brood, broods 13, uh, that one does make it into parts of southern Wisconsin. And those were last out in 2007. I'm kicking myself because I missed them then. That was the summer I moved to Madison for graduate school. Uh, but I'm going to make sure I see them this year. So southern southern portions of the state. So we talk in Kenosha, Racine, and Walworth counties. Is that that the stretch down there? Yeah, they make it uh, really from the, the Lake Michigan area uh, to the Mississippi uh, in terms of the counties. Sure. They do also make it as far north as into Dane, parts of Dane, uh, and also as far north as like Sauk and Richland counties, just on the north side of the Wisconsin River. Uh, but out of all the areas in southern Wisconsin, uh, probably the single best spot to see these, if you want to see them, would be Walworth County, specifically the Lake Geneva area. That is just a very consistent spot for reports of these. Uh, there's some parks on like the north side of the lake, which would be a pretty good uh, bet if you wanted to see them. But cicadas don't harm people. Like this isn't uh, billions of mosquitoes the size <laughs> of fight, birds Mr. that are going to, you know, really be a nuisance. They're they're mostly just make a lot of noise, right? Right, right. Yeah, they're in a nutshell harmless to people and, and pets. Uh, interestingly, whenever there's a big emergence like this, uh, if you hop on Google and, and do some sleuthing, folks have made cookbooks for these, so they are technically edible. Wow. Uh, they don't yeah. really bite or sting or anything like that. Uh, the only thing they can maybe impact us from a human standpoint is if you are in a hot spot, there can be an awful lot of them. So they might be blocking your driveway and sidewalk and could be maybe a little bit of a nuisance. You'll probably notice them more for the sound, though. And unfortunately, there's not much you can do about that. If you are in a hot spot for cicadas and they are out and when the adults come out, they're going to be out maybe upwards of a month-ish or so. Uh, if you have plans for outdoor weddings, graduation parties, <laughs> outdoor concerts, you probably need to find some sort of alternative plan or move it indoors because it's going to be pretty loud. And it gets to wow. a point, too, PJ, that I recall just from the last time this happened is that, like, you'll walk into the house and there'll be one on your shoulder. Like, you won't realize they're, like, fl they're kind of clunky, but they'll land on you or they'll be on your clothing or you'll brush up against something and one will stick to you or, or climb on you. And then all of a sudden it's in the house. Oh, right. Yeah, and again, if you're in a hot spot, there's going to be an awful lot of these. So sometimes they can hitchhike, show up in weird locations. And so how <laughs> loud is an individual cicada versus... Because I, I assume it's like crickets when it's... there's It's the, the mass of them ah, making yes. the big noise. It's the symphony. It's the symphony of crickets. It's the symphony of cicadas. But how loud is an individual cicada? Yeah, that's a good question. So I had been wondering that uh, that same question myself, and I was doing some digging online, and it depends. I found some uh, YouTube videos of folks, like, recording cicadas, and if you have them up close right next to a microphone, 
it can be close to like 90 to 100-ish decibels if they're inches away. Uh, but in general, what most folks will expect in those areas, if there's a chorus of, of males calling from a tree, it might be in the ballpark of 70 to 80-ish decibels, which is kind of in the range of a, a busy road or a vacuum cleaner. Got it. All right. Well, what other bug news should we be aware of? Is this mild winter going to totally make this summer bug infested? Not necessarily. Um, when we think of, of things like that, uh, you know, one insect that comes to mind would be mosquitoes. And it's a little too early to tell what's going to happen with those. I think what we really need to watch is how much rainfall and precipitation we get this spring. That's a bigger factor there. But with the weather patterns we're seeing, what I'm expecting at the moment if the warmth continues, we're going to have insects popping out earlier in the season. Um, maybe they'd normally pop out in May, but they might be popping out in April, for example. And if we have an extended warm season, so basically a longer growing season, extended fall, early spring, um, there's some insects that might be able to squeeze in extra generations. And so that could sometimes be potential problems to farmers or gardeners and, and things of that nature. Uh, another thing that can happen, though, is we have some insects that maybe aren't quite here in Wisconsin or not super common. Maybe they're in the southeast corner of the state and they fare better in places like Indiana and Kentucky. Well, with mild winters, sometimes those insects can press farther north into the state. A good example of that would be our praying mantids, which aren't native here. Ooh, that'd be cool. But mm-hmm. when we have warm Warm winters, they move northwards. If we have a brutal polar vortex, it kind of knocks them back south again. PJ Leash, before we let you go, I, you, you mentioned the mild winters and whatnot. I'm, I'm still seeing it. We have box elder bugs. I saw one walk walk around the house yesterday. And, and because of the mild temps, I assume, and because of the sun, like the outside of our house will have those silly, I think they're box elder bugs, like just kind of walking around. They don't really cause any issue, but they're just like... Alive and well. It's February. They seem like they're wandering around. Yeah, and it just has to do with the the warmth that we're getting right now. It's in the 50s in a lot of areas this week, and uh, they can become active. Otherwise, they would, uh, on a more normal winter, they'd be hunkered down uh, with the cold temperatures, but being cold-blooded once it warms back up again, uh, their activity can resume. All right. Well, PJ, thank you, as always, for joining us. We'll have to check out that uh, cicada cookbook. Yes, we'll have, like, <laughs> cicada oatmeal together. That'd be great. Oh, crunchy. All right. Coming up next, uh, some hot goss. Uh, the Badgers back at Lambeau? This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry, along with Eric Bilstad. Lambeau Field. Some hot goss. Nothing's been confirmed yet, I don't no, think. No, that's what's so unique about this story. Usually Lambeau or the organizations involved would be in front of it. Right now, they're not saying anything. They're not saying anything. So you told me about this story this yeah. morning. I didn't see it. But basically, Northwestern. Big Ten. Mm-hmm. Yep. Are we still calling it the Big Ten, even though there's going to be like 23 <laughs> the con- big, teams the big in it now? 18, whatever um, it may be. But they, their stadium, their football stadium is mm-hmm. going under construction, so they're trying to find where they're going to play their home games. Sure. And it sounds like Lambeau has been offered as what, when they play against the Badgers? So, yeah, the Journal Sentinel uh, cited something that the athletic director down there at Northwestern Mutual, who had told alumni in New York City that Northwestern will play a home game at Lambeau. 
Why would it be a home game for Northwestern? Because of what you said, because they, they need to play elsewhere for a different variety of games. So the expectation would be that they'd play at Lambeau on, on October 19th against the Badgers. But it's like, this guy said it, then this guy heard about it, this guy's reporting it, but like uh, Jeff Protoikis from the Journal Sentinel has been trying to get to the bottom of it, and there's been no confirmation yet that this is actually a thing that's happening. I mean, usually you learn about the stuff years yeah. in advance. And that's what's so interesting when you think about, I know this summer there really wasn't much going on at Lambeau because of construction. Sure. But there's a handful of concerts that happen at Lambeau every year. Mm-hmm. In 2022, there was the first soccer game that I think was sold out, and people said they had an incredible time. There was crazy storms and all that, but there was a lot of people there. And so, yeah, there was crazy storms. I forgot about that. And it's interesting because how how much should a professional football team or professional football stadium be used for other things? Because obviously, it's so fun. I mean, I'm biased, but as a shareholder. But going up to Lambeau, going up to Green Bay, there's been title towns been so built out of using it for more things than just the handful of home games. And is it under is it underutilized? Would this be a welcomed event to have a Northwestern versus Badgers game? And not only that, it would be a Northwestern home game, which means the Northwestern marching band gets to play. Are they good? I don't I, I don't. Who is the best? I feel like the Badgers are up there as far as one of the best marching bands, but I don't know if Northwestern's good. But what would what would you want to see there? That's okay. So like Paul McCartney's been there, right? I want monster trucks. I want monster <laughs> truck rally. Are you a big monster truck guy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be. I'd rather see if I were going to see the monster trucks. I'd rather see them outside for audio purposes, right? Let the so it's not so echoey. Oh, so it's the, acu- the acoustics are a little <laughs> yes, better. It's the acoustics, that's what I'm. Did you wear about. headphones with the the first time you went to see a, your first not, monster truck rally? I have not seen <laughs> the, a monster truck. The old rally. guy with the uh, the earplugs in. But that, that's a legitimate. Well, you better actually. You better wear those. And that's a legitimate point, though. So Pfizer Forum has hosted what? Disney on Ice. They just, Every, they just was here, right? Yeah, yeah. Name name the uh, you know the band that's played there. You know, tons of big ones: Foo Fighters, uh, Metallica, yada yada, tons, right? Then you have Monster Trucks. Yeah. You have the Bull Riders, right? We just had the rodeo mm-hmm. stuff there, or about to have it there. So if you can do that in a basketball arena, why can't you have Monster Trucks and bull riding at Lambeau Field? And I don't know. Maybe it's because of protecting <laughs> the the turf and the grass that there's not more multi purpose events for uh, for a place a like Lambeau. But that's actually a good question. What is the coolest thing you've ever seen at Lambeau that wasn't a Packers game? Give us a call or shoot us a text at the WTMJ talk and text line 855-616-1620. What is the coolest thing you've done if you've gotten to go to Lambeau that wasn't a Packers game? 855-616-1620. I don't think I've done anything besides see Packers game. Did you, did you go to your shareholders meeting? I did what not. What kind of owner are you? I know. I asked my mom recently. I said, do you know? Because it was our our Christmas gift when I was like nine or ten. Okay. I was like, where is? I want, a, I want that in my house now that Absolutely. I'm an adult. Yeah, I think at the time I didn't care. She's like, I don't have to find it. She does not know where. I bet you could reorder <laughs> one. I bet you could get your hands on That's one. That's a maybe. good point. All right. Well, let us know. What's the coolest thing you've ever seen at Lambeau Field that wasn't a Packers game on the WTMJ talk and text line 855-616-1620. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ.
What is the coolest thing you've ever seen at Lambeau Field that wasn't a Packers game? Shoot us a text or give us a call on the WTMJ talk and text line 855-616-1620. I am Christian Bry. He is Eric Bilstad. So this stems from the conversation from the Journal Sentinel where they're trying to get their arms around whether or not it's the gossip is true that Northwestern is considering hosting a football game at Lambeau where they would play the Badgers next fall. And so have you so have you ever gone to an event there that was not a Packers game? I've been to Lambeau outside of a Packers game. I think the only I think uh, the kids and I and my wife we maybe toured the atrium once or twice when we've been up there and just walked around in there when it was open. Did you ever go to Family Night? That looks no. super fun. So the only thing that freaks me out about Family Night is that like any other time you go to Lambeau Field, you can leave whenever you want. But okay. at family night, you got to stay to the very end because you got to see the fireworks. Oh, and well, the you laser have show. to. It's not oh. like they've locked the doors. <laughs> they lock you in, Kristen. But you don't want to leave before that. So, no, like, of course. then everyone's leaving at the same time, and the dad and me's like, oh. But yeah, no, I've got to watch where I park. Because sure there's not the much in the in the area right around the field to go hang out necessarily to be like oh we're just gonna wait for traffic to die down besides just being in here i guess there's yeah. in title town there's some more yeah, bars and stuff, stuff but and at least in wisconsin you can take your kids into the bar right yes <laughs> from the wdtmj talk and text line lots of folks saying kenny chesney or billy joel or of course paul mccartney they've what, all been there what i didn't realize was that the wisconsin badgers oh yeah had a hockey game there yeah. back in was it oh six a while ago yeah that's, yeah that's cool that feels big a hockey, a hockey rink feels a lot smaller than a football because with soccer, there's it's basically one yeah. to one. But I would love to see what that, yeah, it's how much of the field, how much of the the rink took up of the field. I don't recall how they did it at Lambeau, but uh, the NHL will do this every year as well, oftentimes in a different stadium, whether it's baseball or a football stadium, and it is it's not covering the whole thing uh, just because of the size. And sometimes they have some type of seating that can be a little bit closer, but it also depends on the time of year. Yeah. Are you doing that? We should have asked, what would you want to see there? Because then monster trucks would have dominated. Totally monster trucks. (laughs) The whole text line would have been monster trucks. Bigfoot doing flips. That's what they all want to see. (laughs) I want a one monster truck. This was when I was in D.C. Uh, (laughs) And it was pretty fun, I have to admit. Of course it was. Coming up next hour, we're going to talk about internet affordability and also about the uh, Memory Cafes with the Fox Fox Valley Memory Project. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. 65,498 square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry. Welcome back to Spanning the State, the show where we highlight stories from across the state and break down headlines that affect the whole state. I'm joined by Eric Bilstad for our second hour. You'll be here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, today's a Wednesday, mm-hmm. but normally you'll be here with me on Tuesdays, which I'm yes. very much looking forward to. That'll be great. Yeah. And so if you've missed the first hour, if you missed our first two shows, you can go listen to them as podcasts. That's right. Anytime on your time at WTMJ.com. We're also on Apple. I have the links that I've tweeted out this morning for the Apple podcast and Spotify you can take us with you wherever you go some people will say it's more difficult day two day three day four of a radio show while others say it gets easier and easier more comfort and whatnot where do you fall i would say it's getting more comfortable yeah i think i've done radio before obviously i've done radio before but i you know i had a four and a half months i think between 
when I left and went on maternity leave at the end of oh, September. Right. And then the premiere of this show was about four and a half months. So I had some cobwebs <laughs> to uh, dust off my sure. shoulders as far it. as remembering how to do this. And also new clock, new mm-hmm. lineup in general, sure. mm-hmm. new studio. Because even when I was at Radio City... Last time I was at WTMJ, right. it was Radio City, so new to this yeah. setup. And no so, more asbestos breathing. Yeah, exactly. But, so there's just more things to get used to. I got you. But each day has felt better, and I think a month from now, I'll be I'll just be perfect, because that's what its <laughs> goal go. is, right? right. Perfection. Yes. Every day. <laughs> and a reminder, you could also watch us, now that I have to get dressed again after not being on maternity leave. <laughs> right. uh, I put, put on makeup, clothes, I put yep. on nice clothes. Yep, yep. You can watch us at WTMJ.com or text WATCH to the WTMJ talk and text line 855-616-1620, and you will get a text with a direct link to mm-hmm. the, uh, the live stream. Do you that's like right. being on camera? I always forget I'm on, okay. actually, so I'm sure I've... Picked my nose funny or rolled my eyes at something I should have rolled my eyes to. I've done something I probably shouldn't have. It is funny the blend of all different medias trying to be one another, right? Because we're radio. Yes. But all of our producers are constantly writing stories that Mm -hmm. go on the website. We now, you can watch us. I obviously also do stuff for Journal Sentinel where right. it's video and not written, even though they're a paper and all That's of the blending so of media, uh, media mediums. I uh, spoke at a high school journalism class, and that's exactly what I told them, that exact same thing, because a lot of them were newspaper writers or learning how to write and all that stuff. I'm like, no, that's a phenomenal skill. But you also need to figure out how to like speak on a recording and do some visuals as well. And trust me, all the TV stations want their writers or reporters doing more writing and yada, yada, and the podcast and the radio. and Got to do all of it. Because truly, it'd be interesting to know right now, people listening to us, if they're streaming us and they need an internet access, if they're listening to us via podcast and need some kind of connectivity to be able to get the podcast Mm -hmm. or actually listening to us on an AM radio. But more and more of our daily actions require access to... The internet, and for a lot of us, maybe we—it's a nuisance to pay our internet bill, but it's not such a big obstacle that we have to decide to go without it some right. months, just because of what our income is. But there was a there was a program that uh, part of the infrastructure bill called the um, affordability con- connectivity program, and it is coming to an end. So there's there's not been any money to reallocate to the program, but. It was basically over 400,000 Wisconsinites and just in our state were getting access to this program that took anywhere from 30 to $75 off their internet bill. And it gave access to a lot of people who didn't have internet at their home before. But now that it's coming to an end, there's likely going to be a lot of people who will no longer have access to that. So we're going to be talking to Dave Burka, who is the project manager for Tequity and Resource Equity at United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County. When we come back, as far as what this program was able to deliver to people, what it means that it's going away, and also where are we right now as far as Internet being a necessity versus a luxury? Right. Is it becoming a utility just like water or heat, et cetera? Absolutely. So Dave Burka will be with us when we come back. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. So think about the last time either the power or maybe the Internet alone went out in your home. 
How limited were you in doing the things that you would normally do? If you work from home, obviously that would be hard to do. Uh, your kids doing schoolwork. Obviously, watching TV is that's more of a luxury. But playing Rocket League on Xbox. Yes, <laughs> but you know some of the things that you go to do, and you're like, oh, I can't do this thing because I don't have access to the internet. I was right. thinking of, is it um, Leave the World Behind? Oh, was the, the Netflix movie? Yeah, based on that book. Yeah, and some people didn't like it, but it really demonstrates, without giving it away, how reliant we are yeah. on the internet now. And so when you think about not having it. And what limitations that creates for people, it makes a little bit more sense why there was a program that was created with the um, infrastructure bill called the Affordable Connectivity Program that gave a lot of people a little break on their Internet bill. So joining us to talk more about what the program did and what the ramifications of it coming to an end could be is Dave Berka, who is the project manager for Tequity and Resource Equity at the United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County. Dave, as someone who works with people to get them access to the Internet, we talk about being in Wisconsin. A lot of times we hear about broadband expansion and being able to even get in a place that has access to high-speed Internet. But would you say the bigger problem is being in areas that have access to it or being in an area that has access to it but just not being able to afford it? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Um, that's a great question. So the way I try and frame the question when I'm speaking out in, in situations like this is to actually frame it in terms of access being the problem um, because when when you when you're looking at access and how people access the internet, it varies so much depending on um, where you live, so your zip code or your census tract, and uh, and your household income. Those are probably the two most determinative things about uh, how you access the internet. So I don't think it's quite either or. If you live somewhere without internet infrastructure, even though you have the ability to pay, then the lack of infrastructure is your biggest barrier. But it, the reverse is also true. So if you live somewhere. Uh, where there's infrastructure but you don't have the ability to pay, then affordability is going to be your biggest barrier because living next to the infrastructure doesn't doesn't do you any good in and of itself. Um, so <clears throat> when it comes to the barriers you may experience in adopting the Internet in your household, um, they're relative to where you live, to your income. I think lack of infrastructure and the inability to pay are just two sides of the same coin, which is uh, access. And so, sorry, excuse me, with the Affordable Connectivity Program, was there a lot of, I know there were the number that's been thrown out as far as how was, how many Wisconsinites were taking advantage of the program is upwards mm-hmm. over a 400,000. Were a lot of those people paying for internet already, or did this program actually get a lot of people access to the internet for the first time in their house? I don't know the statistic on how many people were already paying for internet service, um, you know, when they adopted the ACP. Uh, or when they when they started using the ACP resource, um, ACP you know provided a thirty dollar a month uh, subsidy to eligible households for the cost of home internet service. Um, and so I don't know the statistic on how many people already had internet service, but it lowered the cost for so many households. Um, you're correct. You know, I checked this morning: four hundred and twenty-six thousand households, over four hundred and twenty-six thousand Wisconsin households are currently enrolled in ACP. Uh, and with the end of ACP coming, uh, or at least that's surely what it looks like, um, then many of those households are going to lose that benefit. And so um, it's it's really a question of once that benefit goes away, how many households then um, will lose or could lose access altogether if uh, they can't if they simply can't afford 
that subscription anymore. Hey, Dave, it's Eric. I often wonder, too, whether or not, like, businesses who have employed remote workers would then, like, include stipends or something like that for their employees who are remote in order for them to continue to be able to afford something where they were maybe taking advantage of an opportunity with what was offered and now would need more assistance to be able to pay for something that they're using for work. Yeah, that's really possible. So ACP was used, uh, ACP was, was valuable or is valuable because it can cover uh, someone's household internet cost or, or help reduce that cost um, for whatever they need to do, whether it's work or school or anything. Um, whether or not there are situations where an employer was uh, helping with the cost of internet, I mean, I think that um, would be a great thing for an employer to do if they have the resources to do that. It's certainly not guaranteed. Um, and so, you know, once ACP is is gone, it's really a question of how many of those ACP subscribers um, would be in situations where their employer would be in a position to help them with that cost. I think probably not not many, based on just anecdotal ex- experience of my own. We're talking to Dave Burka, who's a project manager for Tequity. Uh, which is part of the Greater Milwaukee uh, United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County. And Dave, with in a post-COVID world, I feel like we all experienced when we were trapped in our houses and work became remote, school became remote, health appointments became, doctor's appointments became remote. In the work that you do, is there still a lot of work to do to convince people of what limitations exist if you don't have access to internet or has everyone kind of gotten to the point where they accept this as more of a necessity than a luxury? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that you don't need to convince many people anymore of the necessity of the internet. Um, we've, we've definitely gone culturally from the assumption that the internet is um, a luxury or um, something you can, you can buy if you, if you prefer to have it. Um, to something that's a necessity. If you don't have it, you're really going to be at a disadvantage in so many different ways. Um, that's not a hard argument to make anymore because everyone has this very present memory of COVID and what it was like to go through that um, really, tr- you know, culturally, economically traumatic experience um, uh, and not have the Internet or to lose connection while you're trying to find really valuable information, you know, just from the data on ACP, for example, we know so many people use ACP for telehealth. Um, so I know that um, that we don't have to make that case. And at the same time, um, I think that there is a lot of urgency that we need to raise still around um, the necessity of the internet for everyone um, who needs it and, and wants to adopt it. Um, so it's more a matter of putting it at the top of the priority list. Are we focused on infrastructure and the way that we need to focus on infrastructure and making sure that there are connections um, for people wherever they live? Um, are we focused on affordability and and those two things, infrastructure and affordability being keys to um, making sure everyone has access and can adopt the internet if they, if they so choose? And so last question before we let you go, Dave, is there any movement sure. to keep this pro to keep ACP going at the federal level? And if not, are there programs or resources in the state or more specifically in our region for people who want to continue to have access to the internet, even if they can't pay a full bill? 
Yeah, definitely. There's huge momentum at the at the federal level and at the state level, advocates all over the place who are encouraging the renewal of ACP. In fact, there's a bipartisan, bicameral bill uh, asking for the extension of ACP through the rest of 2024 for $7 billion. Um, that the consideration of that bill is held up at the time being, and so really the advocacy is around uh, making sure that that bill uh, or those bills get put up for a vote. Um, and uh, uh, when it comes to resources that uh, are uh, available to Wisconsinites, um, there is a program called Lifeline. And so Lifeline is uh, in some ways similar to ACP. It benefits low-income households. The range uh, of, of support that it provides is, is much less than uh, the Affordable Connectivity Program. Lifeline is about 7 to $19, and um, the eligibility requirements are a little bit different. So that is something that could replace ACP for some people, but chances are if you were already uh, aware or if you're already enrolled in ACP, then you're probably already aware of, of Lifeline. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's really going to be a detriment um, to many, many, many households if, if ACP goes away. Well, thanks so much for your time, Dave. Uh, Dave Berka is with the United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County. Setting time unlimited WTMJ news time is 2.24. This is site. This is spanning the state with WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Eric Bilstad. And I think it's because I think we often think of Internet as oh it's buffering i can't l- watch my netflix as fast as i want to my parents com- or my uh, kids complain all the time to me about it <laughs> all the time the, the, the internet speeds yes and forgetting often i think the te- the telehealth thing is huge because mm-hmm. earlier this week at yesterday we were talking about rural health and one of the solutions it's not a fix-all but as it gets further and further away right. from being able to get to your local hospital, moving a lot of those appointments to being able to talk to your doctor over the internet, being able to show them a picture. But again, that takes the internet. So if you were to, I know, I know you weren't saying that this should happen, but you were, you, you had a very open question there about like whether or not it's necessary. And then like, Almost the analogy of like a utility, like if if Wi-Fi or the Internet became a utility like water mm-hmm. like, or heat or heat. It, just knowing, first of all, like the amount of work it would take to, to make that happen. <laughs> I can't even, it like, makes my head spin just like just the different levels of government that would have to be involved and the infrastructure and all that. But could you imagine if that became then what would you do? So say everyone got the Internet. Some people are going to want faster Internet, right? So then how would that come into play? Well, and there was back, I think, in 2017, and I'm blanking on what the bill was called, but it had was had to do with the FCC, and it had to do with basically tearing out Internet access. Okay. And so that you could pay more okay. to get higher speed Internet. So you'd have to do that. Right? And... I forgot where it landed, but I remember learning about this. And as far as a fight to be able to have different packages of more affordable Internet, that was a little bit slower versus the highest speed, which would be a little bit more expensive. And thinking back at it now, if your option is slow, no Internet or slower Internet, you would take I would imagine you want to take slower. Now it also just comes back to 
fairness, I so, guess. And then would there be like a moratorium, just like we energies, you know what I mean? Like for a couple of months, it, would there be different outage times where, okay, well, we won't, we won't cut off your Wi-Fi if you can't afford it. You know, would there be, would that oh, have to be that's an interesting thing. in some fashion? As Well, it also, I mean, we'll go back to renting, right? And landlords, your landlord has to be in Wisconsin, has to be able to provide you heat. If yeah. the heat's broken, you can stop paying rent if they, until they fix it, right. right? So if the internet, if some kind of internet access right. wasn't available, would you be able to withhold rent? Fascinating. It is. It is really fascinating. Well, coming up next uh, at 2.45, we're going to be talking to Carrie Esselman from Fox Valley Memory Project about memory cafes. But before that, I want to replay when we come back after the news uh, a little bit of yesterday's interview on Wisconsin Afternoon News with former Governor uh, Marty Shriver as far as his new book and his time spent being a caretaker for his wife. ABC News and local headlines are next. Spanning the state. I'm Kristen Bry here with Eric Bilstad. And this timing was actually perfect because I had had my interview set up with Carrie Esselman from the Fox Valley Memory Project to talk about memory cafes. And then, but yesterday, Wisconsin after Wisconsin's afternoon news had a wonderful interview with former governor Mar- Marty Schreiber, uh, Schreiber and his new book, My Two Elaines Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's caregiver. And so I wanted to play some of that interview because I think it really gets at the heart and the story of what it takes to be a caregiver to someone who's living with dementia. Yeah. And Marty uh, is such a you know genuine person. So when you speak to him about this, you, he he's, has such a, a good, he has a, he has a talent of being able to describe it in a way that's easy for everyone to understand. And one of the things that stuck out to me, and I think stuck out to you yesterday during that interview is when he talked about being a caregiver and like, he says basically that becoming a, a caregiver for a spouse suffering from Alzheimer's is not like a profession that someone chooses. To be a caregiver is not a chosen profession. And there's an old saying, you you can't control the direction of the wind, nor can you control its speed, but you can always adjust your sails. And so when Elaine was first diagnosed, I had no idea that it would be a profession for one of a better term, but I had no idea what was going to be a, ahead of me. And I think that's what propels me into wanting to write the book and to talk about this, because if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. And I was ignorant about this disease. I didn't understand how important it was for me to join Elaine in her world. I tried to keep her in my world. And as long as I said, Elaine, it didn't happen on a Thursday, but on a Friday, not the Smiths, not the Jones. Why did you put the car keys in the dishwasher? Wait a minute. She doesn't know that she did that. She also is facing the challenge of realizing she's losing her memory. And so I have to understand the importance of joining her world so I can let go of this person who once was. And it's so powerful to hear someone talk about that, because I think being a, becoming a caretaker, whether it's for Alzheimer's or in dementia, a family member who's taken a fall that becomes disabled, mm-hmm. physically disabled in a different way. Yeah. And these things that we don't necessarily sign up for, but because it's your spouse, because it's your parent, you step up and you do it. But as of 2020, there are currently 120,000 people over the age of 65 with Alzheimer's in Wisconsin, which is only one type of dementia. And those numbers are only going to grow. 
as our population gets older and older. And so that's why I thought it was important to highlight some of the programming that is happening in Wisconsin. And Wisconsin's actually a leader when it comes to dementia care specialists and it, having state funding for that. And so part of that is these memory cafes. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the health benefits to not feeling isolated, to having a community, to having social events that are built for people who are living with dementia, mm -hmm. that are built for people who are caretakers for their family members who are dealing with dementia. And so I'm so excited when we come back from this next break to talk to Carrie Esselman, who is from Fox Valley Memory Project, and talk more about the programming that they do, what it's going to take to multiply these types of programs, not only in Wisconsin, but also nationwide. And so when we come back, we will be talking to Carrie Esselman. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with my guest co-host, Eric Bilstad. Not right. Spalding. Uh, <laughs> Not and I cannot say that I have gone through a family member been who's been di diagnosed with Alzheimer's or, or, or dementia. I can only imagine what hearing that news is like. And I imagine that if you were to get that diagnosis for yourself or a loved one, having a built-in program or community or social events would ease the shock of it and being able to know that you're not in this alone. And so that's why I'm so excited to talk to our next guest, who uh, Carrie Esselman is from the Fox Valley Memory Project. And Carrie, I saw this originally in the Journal Sentinel that Wisconsin is the leading state for memory cafes. What is a memory cafe? Yeah, uh, thanks again so much for having me on here. Um, we are uh, a very progressive state in kind of the vision of what a dementia-friendly state and communities can be. Um, memories were brought over um, from the UK. Uh, Dr. Susan McFadden and her husband, John McFadden, went over there to kind of study dementia care and what did that look like um, over in the UK. And it was really bringing community together uh, in a common environment that's appropriate um, as far as noise level, wayfinding, uh, and in the community. So libraries, um, restaurants, like an actual cafe, uh, nature centers, um, YMCAs, um, they can have, um, you know, two to 25 individuals come um, and they're all living with memory loss or dementia and they gather in this location within their community and um, enjoy a time to sit and visit and uh, socialize, reduce that isolation. Um, but not only that, we have it where we um, have it structured where the individual living with dementia or memory loss comes with a caregiver or their loved one or member or even a neighbor um, to be able to come enjoy that time with them. So it's a common meeting place to uh, reduce that isolation, increase that socialization, and to decrease that stigma around uh, those living with dementia. And it's more than just quality of life. There's also health benefits to not being isolated, correct? Oh, yeah. 
So not only health benefits for those living with dementia, but also those caregivers. Uh, you know, I, I know we were talking about caregivers and you were talking about Martin Schreiber, you know, going through that caregiver journey, nobody chooses that, right? And especially with, a you know, a loved one with a parent or a spouse um, and being able to be around individuals who are um, kind of on the same page as you, um, but it definitely brings out that um, that mood lifter, um, those chemical positive chemicals in the brain coming out, um, that feel good chemical um, that can help reduce that depression, um, can help um, lift that fog that may be in that caregiver's brain. Interacting positively with peers um, can can help all of that. Hey, Carrie, it's Eric. What what does socialize mean? Like what? When I think socializing, I think having a beer, sitting at a campfire, playing cards. What is the socialization? Right. Right. And it can be that. It can be um, playing cards. It can be musical performance that's engaging to the people who are attending. Um, inter- so interactive. Um, so talking with someone next to you. So let's say you have dementia and you're really nervous about communication, at, uh, the lack of verbal communication that you are experiencing. Uh, you can come into a memory cafe and you can have a conversation that you repeat yourself over and over again, but nobody questions you about it. Everyone keeps asking that question and making you feel okay and comfortable about that. So it's like that environment that everybody is understanding and really helps those caregivers see, okay, this is how we interact with someone positively when they are repeating themselves. And so I'm going to try that when I get home um, with my loved ones. So it's really, um, you know, it is having maybe having a coffee clutch, um, sitting down and having that cup of coffee. Um, a lot of times people, when they have that loss, they don't want to go out and do that in public because they don't want anyone to notice that. Um, and so it's creating that environment, just like you said. Maybe we're not having a bonfire or having a beer, but uh, maybe it's a, a, a cup of coffee or some water and some um, danishes that we're having a conversation over. You know what that reminds me of? And it sounds funny, but it reminds me of when I was a new parent. My wife and I would either, you know, go to some yeah. type of. Uh, yeah. Have you done that yet, Kristen? I have not. I have not done that yet. But you, you see other parents with children the same age, and you learn things. Carrie mentioned that idea of like picking up on a process that someone else might use. You learn that as a parent. Oh, that's what he or she's doing like, with their kid. Like the mommy and yeah. me yeah. classes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Hmm. And so. Yeah, well, and two, it's like it you you or you go there and you see that caregiver that's just exhausted. You can pick that yeah. out. You can pick out that parent that is just exhausted, and you're going to reach out to them, right? Because you have that that kind of common understanding, and so we see a lot of that kind of caregiver support back and forth. And the Fox Valley Memory Project is that intertwined with the healthcare system or as for now is it two separate things that you have to find on your own after you were you would say get a diagnosis yeah so we cover four regions in northeast or four counties in northeast wisconsin and we like to say we are that next stop after healthcare after that diagnosis so we work closely with all the healthcare systems in the area and we have a neuroscience group which has a memory clinic there so they do diagnostics and we are that first kind of person they send to for that socialization uh, within the community. We work really closely with those dementia care specialists at the county level to make sure that they have all those um, boxes checked of support that they're able to get through the county. Um, and then we connect them with other programs within the community. So we do not work as a silo 
at all. We work at as a community resource that's connected to all the other community resources. Uh, and so we, we just like to be that one-stop hub that we can connect you to what is needed. And like I said, it's only in the four counties of Northeast Wisconsin, but um, definitely could be with throughout the state uh, for sure. What would be needed to multiply programs like this, both in the state or even nationwide? Yeah, well, you know, like you said, Wisconsin definitely has a great start to it with having a dementia care specialist in each county. Uh, You know, you can only do so much at a county level. And so a private nonprofit uh, to be able to have those donors have that personal community support uh, is huge. You need that community support and those champ- support and those champions. Our, all of our memory cafes, we have 17 around the four counties. Every single one of them is ran by a volunteer. Uh, that volunteer is trained. It has extensive resources from us. Um, but if we could not do that without the community's involvement. So it's a lot to build up that community understanding of what dementia is, why it's important that we need to be uh, on top of this um, social model and um, helping the healthcare communities understand that as well. Um, And we've had amazing responses from anyone and everyone that we've been in in front of, uh, police departments, emergency response departments, because they usually come in contact with individuals when it's crisis mode. Um, so we would love to, you know, be able to have this in every community throughout Wisconsin or the nation to, you know, that nonprofit structure is nice because then you get community involvement of donor base um, and understanding word of mouth uh, throughout those communities. So definitely community involvement and understanding of why, why do we need this dementia support. Thank you so much for your time, Carrie. Carrie Esselman is from the Fox yeah. Valley Memory Project.